Welcome to Uncorked, another podcast brought to you by Team Corker. I am pumped to have a returning guest and a returning author on the show today. Steph Jagger was with us nearly two years ago to the day when we spoke of her first book called Unbound. Today's episode is about her second book, Everything Left to Remember. The journey and the joy of reading a book written by Steph is that it is a story that touches the depths of her soul that you might like to be a part of yourself, or you would think, thank goodness she is going through this and not me, yet you can't help but picture yourself in the journey on her story. This book just grabbed my heart. It grabbed my heartstrings. She took her mom, who had been declining with Alzheimer's, on an adventure through the Pacific Northwest, camping, camping, in a tent. I mean, sometimes people who do not have a degenerative disease can barely make it camping. And Steph chose to take her mom on an adventure that quite frankly, she knew she may never remember. And yet perhaps those were the memories that Steph wished to remember most. She is a cherished soul, this woman we call Steph. She really transformed my approach and my thinking around goal setting. And I would just love to celebrate all that she is as a human, as a daughter, as a lover, as an author. So on the launch of her second book, Everything Left to Remember, I hope you enjoy this conversation and show her so much love, perhaps by purchasing a copy or two of her book. Enjoy. Steph, welcome back. I just need you to know that you might be the first double guest. Oh my gosh. And it's that way because it's both staffs. It feels like a quadruple love fest. Yeah, it's exponential. Thank you you for having me back. Oh, well, thank you for writing the first book, which is, Mm. was Unbound, which hit my heart, which was one of my ultimate favorite reads of 2020. Mm. And I'll make sure that the link to that podcast and that book are in the show notes. However, you really caught me when you said I have a new book Mm. and I feel like such a lucky, precious soul that got to pre-read this book before it launched and hot damn woman, (laughs) you are an artist. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. This book, it came on through in a whole different way. So it's not lost on me that you have chosen to live a really big life. And it feels like the books have been the aftermath of big life moments. So give us the quick synopsis on how Unbound came to be. And then we're going to dive into everything left to remember. Yeah. The quick synopsis on Unbound was I went about 10 years ago on a ski trip around the world, set a world record that I didn't even know existed, fell in love, all of this thing. And that it really was quintessentially archetypally my maiden voyage. I was 29 years old. I was questioning life, et cetera. And so I went on that journey to really find myself. And then after felt the call to write a book about it. So did that. And that's how Unbound came into the world. And then a handful of years later, my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. 
And I got this idea to do, I was really just struck with it in the shower one day to go on a, on a journey with her on a, take her on a two week road trip with camping and in the Pacific Northwest and the Rockies. And I didn't know it was going to be a book. And then very shortly after, like almost on the plane ride home with her, I started making notes in my phone, like kind of madly and thought, oh my gosh, I think this is a book too. And then went on a real excavation of memory of mother daughter of who am I going to be without her as she, you know, continues to decline and eventually leaves. So that is, you know, the nature of the second book. So it's, it's very much the first one feels archetypally maiden. The second one feels archetypally mother. Mother, maiden to mother. Now, forgive me if this is a really dumb question yet. Did you ever set out to be an author? (laughs) No, I didn't. I always loved writing stuff. Like when I was a kid, I loved to write. Whenever I traveled, I always had a journal with me. You know, it was and still is part of how I understand who I am in the world. But no, I never set out to be a writer. And now it just feels like quintessentially that part of who I am. It's how I, I exactly what you say, like I go away like a shaman leaves the village. I go away. I do these things. I have this growth and learning and it, you know, words are one of the ways that I can come back and translate that message. So that seems to be such a part of calling now is to leave the village and enter into some other kind of space of transformation and then to come back with words to try and describe it. Hmm. Gosh. Well, um, I was going to wait until the end of the podcast to ask you to read us a small passage from your book. And yet it feels like now is the perfect time because as someone who didn't know much about Alzheimer's or living with someone, let alone like loving someone near and dear, like a mother, your book just pulled at my heartstrings in ways that I don't think any textbook could prepare you or Google search could really articulate what the experience is. And if your book, Everything Left to Remember, can be a textbook for how to love and live with a parent who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I think that's what this book is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you mind starting with reading us this passage? It will show us everything we need to know about your choice of words and your choice of love. Yeah, I will. I'd be honored to, I'd be honored to. So we've got a small snippet pretty much from the middle of the book. Okay. That whole morning I had been worried that my mother couldn't handle the rapids when the truth of it was she was the rapids. My mother was the water, the river, as well as the raft. She had moved each and every one of us, myself, my father, and each of my siblings from one place to the next. My mother had delivered us all. She was bigger than every single one of us. But who's going to deliver my mother, I wondered. Who's going to carry her from one place to the next, from this life to an ever after? I wasn't sure I knew anyone big enough for the job. Look, my mom said, while pointing out of the window of the car, there's whipping cream on those mountains. That's snow on the mountains, mom. Who says, she asked quickly. I think it's whipping cream for the animals. You know what, mom? I said, maybe you're right. I'm so glad you said, you know, what you said about if there was a textbook, because I think all of us, 
at the beginning of, and it doesn't even have to be Alzheimer's. Like I think any degenerative disease where you're going to slowly over time lose someone, and especially ones that are related to cognition. But I think we can come up with a definition, you know, an intellectual understanding of what is going to happen. And we can read about the seven stages of Alzheimer's and what they're going to lose at each stage. Or even if you had a parent say that had Parkinson's, or if you were moving through a cancer journey or various different things, you can read about the stages and what to expect. And you can begin to wrap your mind around something intellectually. But I think this is one of the reasons why I'm drawn to be a storyteller is because I know we are moved and motivated from an emotional level and until a story can come down into our bodies it's really difficult for us to kind of create a holistic understanding of what an experience might be like or to seek and find resonance with other people's story and to build empathy inside of our communities if we're to build empathy for people who have or families who are moving through degenerative diseases like alzheimer's and dementia we have to build empathy. And I just don't know a better way to do that than story mm. and being able to feel something as opposed to being able to intellectually understand something. Mm. Yeah. Well, yes. If you are here to be a storyteller, to help us feel your a plus five stars, <laughs> we are learning those feelings and I want to offer, and this isn't in a sense of challenging by any means. I so honor perspective on disease And I just want to reflect back that this could actually be simply a beautiful example of choice in life Mm. and how you have chosen the adventure and returned to choose to be a storyteller. I mean, as you were saying, the stages of a degenerative disease, what came to mind was like, what about the stages of change called grief, called new jobs, called changing family dynamics, all of those have various stages of change. And yet we think that perhaps not everyone may have a parent with Alzheimer's, so we couldn't relate. And what I just want to reflect back is so much of your story gave way to where I'm impatient with my own mother. So much of your story gave way to how we believe certain relationship dynamics should be if that is with other members of family, how your siblings are choosing to be right now in all of it. So I just want to go on a bit of a tangent on your relationship with choice Mm -hmm. and this chosen path. And the first question that comes up for me, Steph, is how have you been able to choose what feels like? So this is obviously on the outset, so deliberately to be in the moment. You said, mom, I'm choosing to take you on an adventure, knowing that it was going to be so wild. And I don't want to get into the adventure because I want people to read it firsthand. And yet these choices, like it feels so deeply conscious that you have chosen these moments. And can you tell me about your relationship with choice and these chosen moments? Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. And and I think it's deeply related to the idea of initiation. And I am a person who has come to a place where I do my best. It's not always graceful, but refuse to put a stop to an initiation that is happening. Mm. And so there's a choice to be present and allow it and surrender to its continuation. So let's just take the master archetypal initiation of life, death, life. 
right? This is, this is the arc, this is the biggest one we've got is this circular motion of life, death, life. You can see it in nature, you can see it in our own lives, you can certainly see it as we've been moving through the pandemic. Now, most of us make choices to suspend an initiation. We want, we want to prolong the life stage, right? Who doesn't? Mm -hmm. But if we do not allow the death, if we don't make a choice of being present to the death phase, what ends up happening is we do suspend the initiation and we think that's prolonged life and it's actually living death. Mm. And so it takes some time, it takes practice, it takes a huge amount of surrender, much of which I've learned from my mother. But to choose to allow these initiations to progress forward means that yes, we will have to be present to the death portion of it, but then we get to see the rebirth and the life on the other side. So that's how I think of it. I have watched, I have been part of, I have made choices myself to suspend initiation. And it, to me, just feels like an excruciating amount of pain that gets prolonged mm. as opposed to allowing for the cycle of something, which may mean closure and ending, but always means openings and new beginnings. So th that's how I view choice is, am I suspending an initiation or am I being asked to continue its allowance to provide space for it to unfold? Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 Birth <laughs> and rebirth and living and dying. Can we go into how that has impacted your relationship with your mom and what that has taught you? Yeah, I, I think the way it's impacted my relationship with my mom, especially because of the progression of Alzheimer's is really to allow her to be in a different time space reality and to have that be different all the time and to have that be progressing in a way that I can't control and to be okay with that. And, and I think if I'm going to allow my own initiations, I have to allow for other people's. Hmm. And she is in the midst of a, a big one. I mean, it's like watching a person in shape-shifting in slow motion, uh, you know, Alzheimer's and all these degenerative diseases are very interesting in that way it's allowed me to find new and different connection points and, mm. and ways of finding connection and belonging that are much different than say we had when I was a little girl and she was my mommy, you know, making me cucumber sandwiches to take to school or a birthday cake or the way she would consistently pick me up on time or various different things that formed trust and a different type of communication and connection. And I think in allowing both of us and learning how to allow both of us to move through our own initiations in our own time and to surrender to that also allows for different types of connection that I, I wouldn't have necessarily seen or had with her if I was still trying to force us into a stage of who we were, who we used to be. Mm. I think this is common in all of us. I mean, how many yes. of us inside of a relationship, business relationship, yes. family relationship, personal romantic relationships, you know, don't allow an evolution of both of the individuals and or the partnership, the intimate partnership between the two people. We try and force what we used to be yeah. as opposed to saying, what is the reality that is present for each of us in this moment? And what does that mean about the connection that we have now and might need to change? Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking to that, so how many siblings do you have? Yeah, I have four of us who grew up together and I have an additional sibling, which, you know, the story of that is kind of told in that book. Altogether, there is five of us, four of us who grew up together. 
Right. And now are there five of you that are still in touch around your mom or is it more, there's five of you that are loving siblings? Yes. Yes. And an incredible and resilient and very loving father. Yes. Yes. And how has, in whatever way, without prying and disclosing anything that of course you're not comfortable with, how have your siblings experienced this change and how has this change impacted your family dynamic? Because also your mom has moved into a home now. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So my mom has been in a care facility in Vancouver since the summer of 2020. Gosh, it's so hard to know inside of this like COVID time landscape. Um, So really like fairly early on in the pandemic. That's right. That's right. Gosh, that's also tricky. That was very tricky. So, so to answer your question of how are my siblings experiencing this, both the book and, and the ongoing grieving process of my mother, you know, that's a really tricky one for me to answer because, you know, you, you've read the book, so you'll know, you know, my family is not a family of a lot of words and outright kind of communication about their emotions. And so there's a lot of kind of guesswork, you know, being clued into what might be going on, et cetera. So that's too difficult of a question for me to answer. And I don't want to put words in the mouths of my siblings. What I can say is two things. The first is my mother was kind of like the keystone in the fireplace of the family. And so as she has shifted, so have the rocks of the fireplace around her, right? Mm. And so there is a ongoing shifting landscape of family of, do we all still go to mom and dad's house for Thanksgiving dinner? You know, if mom isn't the one who's cooking the big meal and, you know, what happens with that? And, you know, Mm. those kinds of questions. So there is a shifting landscape of the patriarch and the matriarch, you know? Yeah. And I think that's pretty natural as we all, you know, as, as my siblings have kids and as they form their own traditions, et cetera. Yeah. There's another part of that that is probably what I would describe as collateral grief. Okay. So there's the direct grief that each individual is experiencing with the loss of their wife, or for me, the loss of my mother, or, you know, my, my aunts, the loss of their sister, there's direct grief there. There's also collateral grief inside of families and tight-knit relationships. This could be an example inside of companies as well, that you have direct grief of one person, but you might not realize how much your relationship, say, with your brother or with your sister or with your aunt was tied into the relationship Mm -hmm. with your mother. Mm -hmm. So did you get most of the updates, for example, of how your brother was doing with his new wife in Minnesota? I'm making this situation up. Did you get most of those updates through your mother? And when she goes, what now shall be the relationship with your brother? Absolutely. So so there's kind of an ongoing navigation of both a bit of guesswork for me in regards to pretty educated guesswork with my family in regards to how this is impacting each individual, but also a real shifting landscape in regards to collateral grief, for sure. Gosh, thank you for sharing that. And again, I think it's so relevant to family units, to business units. And I think it's really beautiful. I think the pandemic has really taught me or shown me that traditions that I never, ever thought would be any other way 
can in fact be another way. And when they become a different way, it's okay. And I realized just how tightly I held on to some things and mm. it's okay. We can all still live and live differently now. And that's a big deal. So yeah. I hear you in that. My second question to that though, was how has your family responded to you sharing so intimately and deeply about this journey with your mom? Yeah. What I'll say is first and foremost, I couldn't write the story about my mom without it being also the story of my dad. I mean, they're high school sweethearts, right? So they've, they've been together 50 plus years. And so it was really important to me as I moved through the journey that I keep my dad a little bit more up to date on what I was writing. I read him certain pieces at various points of the journey. And he has been ultimately just a prince with this as, as the person who's kind of the mourner in chief of what's going on with my mom and the primary caregiver for multiple years before she was moved into the care facility she's now in. He has been wonderful, open, communicative, supportive, even when his memories differ, you know, or his lived experience differs from mine in regards to, to my mom. So he's been phenomenal. My siblings have all been really, really wonderful in regards to an open flow of communication, as I said, they are much more like my mother. Like my father and I are the two most talkative, emotionally available talkative folks in the bunch. And so I didn't expect that my siblings would show a verbal outpouring of like, whoa, congratulations, stuff. This is so great. And they're also deeply in the midst of their own grieving processes. So I've really done my best to educate and inform about what was going to be happening with the book and the process and the timing and making sure they get copies early. So they have time to process, et cetera. And then just really done my best to back away. Mm -hmm. Like you don't need to tell me this is good. You don't need to tell me how it makes you feel. You don't need to tell me it's right or wrong. You can be happy. Mm -hmm. You can be angry. Like I, and I'm just going to use what the archetypal mother, I am going to back away hold space and understand that there might be some chaotic things happening in the middle here. Mm. And there may be some things born from that. And I don't know what those are yet. And I may never know what those are and that's okay. But to allow them each to move through their own process has been an important thing for mm. me and to not demand access to that. Mm. It has to be an excruciating thing to have your own story and your own lived experience and to allow all of us to have that, you know, there's going to be five different lived experiences, I have five siblings. So four other different lived experiences of, of my mother and realities that are created based on that. And it's one thing to kind of say, okay, everyone's allowed to have their own reality. That's it. That's life. And then to have one of those realities put into print mm. and confirmed time and time again, as the reality, mm. I just, I really applaud them, each of my siblings for all of the different processes that they have been moving through. That is not an easy thing to have mm. happen. Yeah. Gosh, that is so generous of you. That is really so beautifully generous. And I can imagine being a sibling that might not be an author or might not be a storyteller mm -hmm. and thinking my story may differ, or I didn't go on a trip with mom like this and storylines can be different. And I think that is like the quilt of life. Yeah. And you just articulated that so beautifully. Mm -hmm. I am mindful that the clock is ticking and I want to ask you two final questions. 
Yeah. The first was inspired by you when we met, you know, over two years ago now, mm -hmm. um, you actually so beautifully framed a conversation about goals. And I still hold that so near and dear in your renovation of it's not about the what it's who do you get to be to do yeah. what you do yeah. and then have what you have. Yeah. And one thing that really stuck with me from that conversation was that as soon as we accomplish something, what comes out of it is what's next. Yeah. You know, it's soon as one finish line is crossed, one book is born, one child is there, you're married. It's like, so now what? Mm -hmm. And I thought about this so consciously before we hit record, because I thought, am I allowed to ask Steph what's next? <laughs> or does that go against everything she's taught me to be true? And I can't help it. I think uh -huh. you, you shared that two years ago and we know that the book is about to launch and, you know, there'll be a link to make sure people know how to purchase and what happens on the other side of a book launch? I think there's two things. And I think it, you know, it does fit into how I think about goals is not necessarily what's next from a doing standpoint, but what's next, you know, over the next handful of you know weeks and months from a being standpoint. And for me, there's two things. There is one, which is to be as best I can in service of the thing that is bigger than me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for me with this book, it is how am I in service of mothers and daughters? How am I in service of the Alzheimer's community? How am I in service of my mother's energy, which is really, you know, sewn into and part of the fabric of this book. And so that that's one question is, am I continually asking how I'm in service of the thing that's bigger than me? You know, the second thing, and, and this goes to, you know, I, I think this is maybe overworking. It's not what's next. It's what's always, you mm -hmm. know, for me, and there's a very specific focus on it now, which is really how to be love in the room. And, and what I mean by that is not some like, ooey wooey, how do you be like the nice, kind, people pleasing, you're just lovely to everybody. I don't mean it that way. I mean, you know, how do I will the good of everyone around me, including myself, mm. you know, as you move through a publication process, it, there's a lot that goes into that from a as we talked about earlier, kind of a marketing and sales standpoint, but there's also an ongoing grieving process. So how do I love myself through this? So those are two things. How do I be in service of the things that are bigger than me? And how do I love myself as I move through that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe there's another book down the road. Okay. You're not done yet. Oh, I, no, no. I don't think no, she's not done yet. done yet. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. I'm going to make sure that we have, if you haven't listened to the first podcast to listen to the first podcast, because it really did hit my heart about my relationship with setting goals. Mm -hmm. And I love that you just brought that back because it landed goals in such a, a new and beautiful way. How am I love in this room? Yes, please. Yeah. The last question that we wrap every podcast with this year in 2022 yeah. is can you share a goal that you're stoked about in 2022? Obviously the publication of the book. That's not necessarily a new goal, but most creatives know this. To be able to hold the idea of something and then to see it in the future, to hold the tension of that when it's just mm -hmm. in an ideation form, but you can see that one day it will be complete. That is a distinct kind of skill set for visionaries, for leaders, for creatives, et cetera. And so for me, the goal of 2022 is to make that happen, bring it into full fruition without that tension turning into an elastic band that kind of shoots me all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. So it really is, it goes back to that, you know, how do I love myself through this? That is a huge goal for me for 2022 as this book comes into the world. Okay. 
I'm just going to repeat that. You said, how do I love myself through this? So the next question must be, what is love for yourself? And I ask this because it feels like such a big question. I just heard that in the bottom of my heart. And I was like, wait, how do I love myself through all of these changes? When was the last time I asked myself the most important question? Can you share that with us, Steph? Yeah, I think for me, I think about that in two ways. One is spaciousness and time. Am I providing enough space and time for myself to fully digest this experience emotionally, mentally, from a business standpoint, all of these different things? Because it's really, really easy for someone like me to move through something with, you know, execution pace and to go, go, go and bring in a lot of hustle, which often leads to me overriding some kind of emotion. And when I override emotions, it leads to explosions and stuff in the future. And so for me, that loving self is how do I go slowly enough, provide enough time and space to integrate and digest all of this. Mm. The second thing that I think about in regards to, you know, how will I love myself through this is I think about it as being maybe devoted to having practices around what would I do if I adored myself? Mm. What would I do? Would I eat this or that? Would I rest this way or that? Would I move my body in this way or that? Would I treat myself to X, Y, Z? Would I, and I don't know that there's a lot of abundance around that. There's a lot of spaciousness around that. There's a lot of time to integrate and digest. It's different than putting myself on my own pedestal and ego and that kind of preciousness. But I I do think that that's a question that rolls through my head a lot. If what would I be doing? What would the decision I'd be making if I adored myself, you know, and perhaps Steph, perhaps that comes from the loss of my mom. I mean, I think people who are lucky enough to, as a kid, to be able to walk into a room and see a person's eyes light up. Mm. Right. I mean, that is a, unbelievable experience. I wish all kids had that experience. I certainly had that experience with my mom. And I think that's the question. How do I do that for myself? Mm. Right? How do I make sure that my eyes are lighting up when I'm making these decisions that I'm, you know, giving that to myself. And I, and I think that's exactly, you know, the nature of this book is if she's not there to do that for me anymore, how do I stand in you know, certainly gather the people around me that I need to, but, but how do I offer that to myself? Well, that's a mic drop if I've ever heard one. (laughs) And that is the full circle of your mother showed you a love that was, as they say, only a mother's love can give. And it is so deeply instilled in you so clearly because here Mm -hmm. you are on the other cycle of life, offering that to not only your mother, not only the world through the book, and yet continuing to ask yourself the same question. So I am so grateful that I have access to a friend in you that would send me your book to read ahead of time that we can record this on launch week. And I am just so, so grateful that you have chosen this path Mm -hmm. in this lifetime because we are better for it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's just a sign, like we're all going to be okay. If we Beautiful. can just put one foot in front of there and, and thank you for having me back. It's ah. been. Yes. Thank you, Steph. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. And may you really relish in all things launch and abundance and all of the 
joy and the gush and the praise, I hope you are porous and let it really, really permeate because it's years and dare I say a lifetime in the making. Mm, Thanks, Steph. Thank you. I so appreciate that conversation with Steph Jagger and the opportunity to connect with an author to know about the heart and soul that came before a book was written. And as she said, that creative tension that goes from when the idea is born and consummated, if you will, through to a book being born into the world. So this is launch week. So before you get your copy, let me leave you with my second favorite portion of the book. And it happens to be the very last page. She wrote, A lot of people might say it took me a long time to come to this, the idea that divinity lives both inside of us and all around us. But to see it that way would be both narrow-sighted and narrow-minded, because in actual fact, it has taken millennia. It has taken time to rise. It takes eons and earthquakes. It takes glaciated ice scraping down your back, thousands of years of stony pressure. It takes water dripping one droplet a day for a million days and then a million more. It takes the heat of a culture that wants to burn you down. It takes the lingering heat of a culture that has. You see, a woman doesn't rise on her own. She does it through lineage. She does it by placing her life over top of her mother's and so on and so forth for thousands of years. I am but a tiny hill, but when you add me to my mother and to her mother before her, we begin to form a mountain. When you add all of us together, we are Everest, or as the Nepali say, goddess of the sky. I am the evolution of my mother. She is the backbone I am growing into. The two of us, along with hundreds who came before us, form a collective. And this has been our hundred year rise, our merging into singular chain of starlight that pours down from the sky. Never have I felt like more of myself. Never have I felt more whole, more powerful, more like her, more like me, more like some intoxicating blend of the both of us and the ones who came before. All of us now moving in the same direction at once, walking together on the shore after decades at sea. Some things may be forgotten, but in the process, we shall be remembered. And those are the final words of everything left to remember. My mother, our memories, and a journey through the Rocky Mountains by Steph Jagger. I really hope you pick up this book.